Greg Davis, how are you? I am surprisingly chipper. Is this a weird time of year for you at the moment? We're right in the middle of series three of The Inbetweeners. Yeah. And you play Mr Gilbert. Gilbert. Head of sixth. Yes. And you're quite physically distinctive, like, for being recognised. Powerful. Powerful. Powerful physical presence. You're very tall. And so, do you get people... <laughs> Thanks. And you're Thanks very powerful. Thanks for instantly reclassifying it. <laughs> yes, you are tall. And, and um, buff... You're that yeah, too. I'm not buff. But do you get people coming up to you all the time? Like when the series yes. is on, does it well, go? Well, all the time anyway. I mean, yes. Shopping <laughs> centres appear to be a bit of a no-go for me. Oh, really? Yes, How I famous are you? Um, I'm a four. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. How often do people come up to you? Depends where you go, I suppose. It's sort of um, lovely younger people who tend to approach you. Older people who like the in-betweeners just as much just stare and try and cool it out. (laughs) So I go up to them. Do you know who I am? I don't. Do they do that thing where they go, I don't know who you are, and then walk away? That's one of the strange... I shouldn't say this, because this will just make it worse. One of the strangest things I probably get on a daily basis is someone coming up to me and saying, now I know that I've seen you somewhere... I don't know where it is, so can you tell me? It's a bit like a group of unsolicited strangers coming up to you and asking for your CV in the street. <laughs> I don't mind. There are people who are really lovely, you know, what? even if they don't know who I am. <laughs> is there, like, a thing that people say to you or shout at you? Yeah. What's that? Uh, oh, my God, it's Mr Gilbert Legend. Oh, you're massive. You're a fucking massive man. There could be worse things to have yeah. shouted at you. Yeah, people are really lovely. People have been really nice about it, and I'm, I feel blessed to be part of something that so many people like, you know. Do you get... You used to be a teacher, yes. right, for a long time. 13 lonely years. And I remember when... Uh, so I should probably explain, I am the music supervisor on The Inbetweener, so I choose the music for it. And when it first started, you know, it was a brand new show and none of us really knew how it was yeah. going to do. And it was quite a quiet start. And so I would stalk it on the internet to find out what people <laughs> were saying. And I remember a couple of times there were clips up and there would be the comments underneath people going like, OMFG, he used to be my <laughs> teacher for reals. And uh, yeah, do you get former pupils? Yeah, I think former pupils are just a bit freaked out by it really i mean it's fair enough isn't it a to see your teacher in a bit part on television and b for him to be playing a teacher i think they find it funny because the contrast between gilbert and what i was like is uh, so stark what were you like i've had people i've had ex-pupils send me accusatory messages like yeah yeah like you were really tough weren't you yeah like you were well strict weren't you sir lol pmsl <laughs> what were you like just. Were you a cool teacher? Because you taught drama, no, I didn't don't, you? I think to be a cool teacher, you, you would have to have some sort of strategy and give a shit, Marshall. I didn't... It sounds awful. I did. I, I've got to stop saying this, actually. I go around slagging teaching off all the time. And in fact, it's some of, the, some of my happiest memories are from teaching. But that was underwritten with the fact that I just didn't want to do it. You so did it for a long time. It doesn't matter time. how many lovely people you meet, which I did, and how much fun the kids were, which they were. You know, and I never felt I did them... A massive disservice as their teacher, but it was always there underneath that I didn't want to do it, that's all. So, just for the record, 
If any ex-pupils hear me slagging off my ex-job, I had some lovely times. <laughs> was it your first job? Yeah, first proper job, yeah. Didn't it was help. entirely my dad's fault, because I did drama at college and then was obviously fully expecting to be uh, an instant success, age 21. And he, he uh, a former teacher himself, said, um, look, why don't you just go and do a bit of teaching for a couple of months while you're deciding what to do with your life, basically? And I said, well, I haven't got a teaching qualification. And he sort of pointed me in the direction of schools that were so bad that they would take anyone as long as they could dress themselves. So did you not even do your... No, I didn't. I, I, went, I went to a school in Slough, which is, has now very recently been knocked down by a bulldozer, <laughs> deliberately. And um, I went there and said, can I do classroom assisting or something like that? And they said, we'll do better than that. We'll train you on the job to be a teacher. And what that training involved was opening a classroom door and saying, this is your classroom, <laughs> pretty much. And then I used to meet with a really lovely Welsh woman who's sadly not with us anymore, a really lovely lady who would meet me every couple of weeks. And the assessment would be something along these lines. She would say, how do you think it's going, uh, the teaching? And I would say, uh, all right, I think. And she would say, well, I think you're great. That was it. <laughs> that was literally it. Well, clearly No forms to fill, no observation. You stayed in for 13 years. Yeah, I presume that's... if you'd been terrible, then... No, I think, but I was, you know, I soon quickly worked out that I should teach drama as opposed to English because I can't spell and um, you don't have to do any marking if you're a drama teacher. And everyone loves drama, you know. They all run in like, it's just playtime, isn't it? <laughs> if there's any drama teachers listening, of course, a good drama teacher is an incredibly skilled professional. So the whole time, were you were you thinking there is this other thing I want to do? Like, mm. if you were teaching drama, were you thinking I should be acting, not teaching? Yeah, but I, I just essentially did a decade of displacement activity. Really, I used to play in a band. Did you? Yeah. What was your band like? Absolutely rubbish. What were you called? Oh God, can I tell you that? Yeah. Five licks of the lemon. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's brilliant. Oh, I think I actually think we had some quite nice songs, but we were without question the ugliest band ever, ever to take to a stage in the United Kingdom. I've got pictures to prove it. Put it like this: I was by a country mile the best-looking member. Who? What did you play? <laughs> I was the lead singer, which is hilarious. You know, I just cannot sing a note. It was awful. I feel bad though, in case the boys hear this. You're very good looking in your own way. <laughs> the best thing was the lead guitarist who stood next to me was Martin Reeves, who is, I think, just five foot tall. Wow. Yeah. What are you, six? Six, eight. Right. Yeah, little Cockney man, and he would stand next to me. And, you know, we'd take to the stage and everyone would just go, what is this? This is a joke. Who are these? This travelling freak show. But we had such great laughs. But I suppose... Creatively, it was a bit of a displacement activity. Right. And I used to run a, a club in Chiswick as well with some mates, and we would, a sort of cabaret club, and we would bring bands down. And that was another displacement activity. Yeah, all great fun. But secretly, I think, I just thought, will I ever do it? Will I ever actually do what I want to do, which is comedy? Did you know you wanted to do comedy? You didn't. Mm, sounds ridiculous, but from primary school onwards, I wanted to be involved in comedy. Seriously? Yeah, I was just recounting. <laughs> I was recounting to somebody. I did the drama course, same one that Lee Mack did, actually. Lee Mack was sort of three years after me. And um, it was quite an arty, pretentious drama course. There were lots of people in caftans on it. And for the part of the degree, you had to finish your degree by doing a practical piece, which meant you didn't have to do a dissertation, which is brilliant. 
and all the kaftan people were doing sort of arty physical theatre pieces that questioned globalisation and things. And I felt swept along with that and that I should do that for my final um, assessment. So I went in for my pre... Is it a Viva or a Viva? I never know. I don't know. Go with Viva. With the lecturers, there were four of them in there. And they said, what do you want to do for your final piece? And I spent about 20 minutes going, yeah, I was thinking of doing this piece about like globalisation. or, or um, No, it was about America, about how much I hated America and its influence on uh, the rest of the world and their foreign policy. And they were going, OK, and how, how are you going to do that? And I, I can't remember, it was physical theatre or blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, I'd be employing Brechtian techniques to expose America. And they all listened really politely, four of them, for 20 minutes, half an hour. And then when I ran out of steam, one of them just went, Still a comedy, Greg. <laughs> it was really humiliating. I went, really? They went, yeah. All of them started nodding. Yeah, just do a comedy. So and was, did you? Yeah. What did you do? I just sort of did a monologue. Yeah, just did a nonsense monologue. Was it like stand-up? Yeah, I suppose, like stand-up. But did you, hang on, before that, if you're saying since primary school, did you used to, like, put on shows when you were a little kid? As soon as I got to secondary school, I did, yeah. Did you? What kind of shows? Well, just anything that was going. We, we had quite a proactive English teacher who put on little arts festivals and things, and me and a small ginger man called Peter Bellingham would take every opportunity to put on stupid sketches and things that were massively unsuccessful, I'm sure, but it was just always there. So when you had your cabaret club, yeah. when you were a teacher, did you have comedians at that? Or No, it tended to be bands, because the two guys I ran it with, Jim and Dave, were actually really good musicians. So it tended to be bands, but then as it went on, we started getting increasingly strange things down. We used to get belly dancers, and we had a Thai chef once. What? That's good, isn't it? Yeah. We wouldn't have that at a cabaret club normally. How did that work? We just sort of cooked on mic. <laughs> 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 and were you ever tempted to... And we had a brilliant magician who uh, Jim found on a tube who was rubbish. And we thought it was a joke, but in fact he was just a rubbish... He was from Croatia or somewhere. And he wore a really dirty, ruffled red shirt and he used to get on the tube and do these rubbish... You could see how all of them were done. And we just thought, you're brilliant. We had him down nearly every week in the end. He would come down and everyone would go mental for him because... And he didn't quite understand it. She's <laughs> a he bit just... cruel, but, you know, he got paid. Well, no, but he was rubbish. <laughs> and, you know, wash your ruffled shirt every now and again. <laughs> wash your ruffled shirt. He probably thought there's no need to. I'm getting such a great reaction. <laughs> I'm a genius. Poor lad. <laughs> and so was there any point during that where you were like, oh, maybe I should just stand up and... Uh... Mm. Well, I sort of normally used to compare the nights, but I didn't attempt any humour. I just... Sort of got overexcited and frustrated. So what happened then? What was the breaking point? Well, it was literally that, I think. <laughs> I just think driving home in my Renault 18, coming back from uh, Sandhurst at the time. One day I was just inconsolable. I can't remember why. I just thought, what on earth am I doing with my existence? So what happened? What was the first thing you did? I typed in comedy courses on the internet, thinking there wouldn't be one. And uh, there was one run by Logan Murray and it's still still going today you know lots of comics who are doing all right came through that and it was just 11 weeks of once a week of improvising really but with everybody secretly wanting to do stand-up and I met Steve Hall from Clang on it and Marek Larwood from Clang also did it the year 
the course after me. Do you want to just explain what Clang is? We are Clang. It's a sketch group that I'm in. So you met them on the course. And had you started doing stand-up on your own? No, I hadn't done anything at all. I just saw this course and it said, come in a safe, warm environment, you know dare to dream you might do stand-up one day and then the, the course finished with a stand-up gig where we all just invited friends so it was just improvisation and it was the first time since college so literally 12 years or whatever since I performed properly and, and how did uh, it go it was just liberating for me it was just so exciting to be you know as a drama teacher you're helping all the kids get their performances right but it was so exciting just to dick about for want of more eloquent expression and logan's very good at getting people to discover what's funny about them yeah so that led to the first gig and of course as soon as the first gig happened you had a support network of all these other 20 odd people who so we all set gigs up you know we all did gigs together and things so it was just the most gentle almost cheating <laughs> way of getting into stand-up but uh I would never have done it without doing that course, never. So where was the point where you gave up your teaching job? Um, I did probably about three years of driving up the motorway for no money at all and gigging in Leeds or something and then getting in at four and then registering kids in the morning, almost dead through exhaustion. Uh, and then I got a really jammy break. Someone asked me to write on a children's BBC sort of animation. What was that called? It's called Nelly Nutt. Right. After nominated. Now sadly deceased. Um, and so was that enough for you to be able to... It was just amazing, really, because um, I was never earning enough to give up teaching, but that was part-time, and so I was able to sort of phase the teaching out after a couple of years and do that and stand-up. And then by the time Nelly Nutt ran out, I was supporting myself on stand-up. So you were starting out, you were doing stand-up on your own, because you won the Laughing Horse New Act of the Year. Yeah. It was just unbelievable, that was, and... You know, the Laughing Horse empire continues to grow. I didn't even know what... I just knew that the Laughing Horse was... A, which it, What it is is a series of gigs where a lot of new acts uh, get to perform. And, you know, all I knew was this was one of the organisations where I could get stage time, and they were very good to me. And they have a new act competition. And I entered it naively, not knowing anything about this world of stand-up. And... Um, I won it on my fifth gig. Which no sounds, way. Yeah, it sounds like I'm bragging, but I'm, I, it was just a fluke. I'm sure of it. The, just the stars were aligned. Or maybe 13 night. years worth of teaching well, maybe, drama yeah, taught yeah, you I mean, something. I, I do think that sort of standing up in front of a group of teenagers every day helped with presentation, I suppose. But anyway, it was really great. It was a really great boost. You've got like quite a few of those sort of things under your belt when you started out of uh, getting into finals. I think you're in the So You Think You're Funny finals yeah, yeah. and uh, a lot of kind of award nominations and things. I mean, when you were starting out, did you enter into a lot of these competitions? And things, or was I it think just... we all entered into all of them. We d didn't realise that there, there was so many. There's not as many these days, but So You Think You're Funny and the BBC and there was a Daily Telegraph one, which was also deemed important. We all entered all of them. I think it was only So You Think You're Funny, apart from The Laughing Horse, was the only one I got into the final of. I think I was cruelly knocked out of the others. But it's amazing. At the time, they just feel like everything. And they are important. They are. They're a real leg up, you know. And people who've won them have gone on to have magnificent careers. But at the time, you think they're everything. <laughs> it's weird, because I wasn't a kid. I was 33, you know. But literally, sort of. So naive. But maybe it's not even naive, it's just like whatever you're doing. I mean, you got nominated yeah. this year, you did your first solo show at yeah. Edinburgh and you got nominated for the I did, yeah. Edinburgh Comedy Award. Remarkable, I was proper chuffed. With that, was it a surprise? Yeah, definitely. 
No thought whatsoever that I might be nominated really? for that. Not in the slightest. Because no. everyone I spoke to was saying amazing things about your show oh. long before that. I think after a while, when the show's going well and you've had a few nice reviews, you do allow part of your brain to go, I wonder if I might be. But, but I'm very much a glasses-half-empty man, so they never stayed in my head long. I'm the most pessimistic human being on earth. It's entirely my mother's fault. Does that mean that you weren't disappointed about not winning because... No, not in the slightest. Seriously? Yeah, not in the slightest. I can hand on heart tell you I was just thrilled to be nominated. Do you know what? I kind of (laughs) felt with that, one of the sort of weird things about it, and obviously like I know you and I know you're a great stand-up, but there is often the thing with the Edinburgh Comedy Awards where someone is famous for another reason. Yeah. And having a nomination, or specifically having a win, gives you a massive leg up. But also being on TV a lot gives you a leg up. Yeah. Was there any of that kind of... Do you mean... I mean, did you feel... I, I don't know, like, I guess, like, did you, you feel... feel like, because I'm already on telly. Yeah, do you think people would be like, oh, well, he's already on telly, so he doesn't need it? Well, I suppose some of them might be. No one ever said that to me. And all I would say is that the Comedy Awards has a very specific sort of set of criteria to, to deal with that. And I fit within there. And I guess criteria. it's, not, so it's I mean, not your own show. I'm not so going to turn not, it down. Yeah. <laughs> How has the in-between has affected it? Do you have audiences? Like, is it obvious that some people will come and see you because you're the guy at the in I don't know, Marsha. We're about to find out because I'm about to do my first tour. Okay. So, so perhaps I could ring you in a couple of months <laughs> and tell you the answer to that. Did you I... notice that in Edinburgh, though, at all? Certainly my sales reflected that, I think. But then, you know, I did Clang up in Edinburgh for... Th- Three years, or four years, if you include a sort of our favourite bits package that we did the year after. So I think the Edinburgh audience is fairly loyal anyway, and will come and check out people they've seen in the past. Yeah, the they big do. repeat audience up there, I think. So you said you went up there, was it four times with We Are Clang? But it was your first time solo. How did it compare to being up there with a gang? Mm, I think um, when you're up there with the boys, there's other people to share the stress of it with, to hide behind. You know, it's really gratifying doing something on your own, isn't it? So that's um, pleasing. But in terms of not having other people to just support network of people who are also putting their knackers on the line, as it were, you know. I guess it's just the opposite, isn't it? That it's gratifying to do it by yourself when it goes well. You have to share it with other people. When it goes badly, you get to share that with other people. Exactly. I had lots of people supporting me and being nice up there, so yeah. it didn't feel particularly lonely, but it's far more frightening to do something on your own. Well, let's talk about We Are Clang. Yes. So you first went to Edinburgh, the three of you. When was it? Because you got nominated for the Perrier. Yes, 2006 we were nominated, so our first show was in 2004. And you have, there's like tons of other awards and nominations that you've had, but you also had a TV show. Yeah. On BBC Three. We did. Let's talk about that. Okay. That was last year. Yes. And I remember bumping into you not long afterwards and we were talking about it and you'd said something like, I felt like it was about a third exactly, you know, as we'd wanted it. Mm. And you'd sort of implied like, it's a weird thing to switch a show from stage to TV. So you're going to have to change things. Well, it's a sort of massively, it it was just a massively steep learning curve. And um, increasingly, when I look back on the series and, and watch it, I enjoy it. With every day that passes from us making it, I enjoy it more. <laughs> you know, I just think, oh, it's, oh, I like it. I like a lot of it. But it was a, you know, there's no secret, it's a steep learning curve. And to take 
a totally live experience and turn it into something in front of a camera, even if you do do it in front of an audience, is just really difficult to do. And we had a lot of um, great people helping us to do that. But at the end of the day, you have to learn. You have to learn how to do it. So, what kind of things did you have to learn? What kind of what surprised you about the process? God, I wouldn't know to start, Marsha. So much. I mean, honestly, I'll probably do a really boring, technical, hour-long monologue about what we learned from it. But you know, when, when people say to you, oh, "Who do you want to do this job on your TV show? Who do you want to do this this special light, or who do you want to organise that room?" Your answer has to be, "Well, I have no idea." You know, and people would say, well, we'll bring these people in for you to meet. And so a man would come in or a woman and, and they'd be really nice. And we go, well, maybe they're, maybe they're really good at or using the big light. <laughs> no idea. So that was little things like that. Not really eloquent of me. It's just a totally different thing. When you're doing a, a live show and you're doing stand-up, that's why it's amazing that people are now starting to get stand-up to work on television because it's such an intimate thing stand up between an audience and, and the performer. And it's the same with Clang, you know. We used to feed off the audience and vice versa at our best shows. So we were able to do that in studio, but but communicating with with people at home is, is a different matter, you know, you because you can't literally physically grab them or <laughs> or you can't throw stuff at them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's so anarchic and off the cuff. And you can't it's difficult to do that as well. You can't just run off because there might not be anything filming you, so it's pointless. But then there was stuff that it felt like it worked better as, as, as new, like it's it's very kind of cartoony. Yeah, we are clang stuff, and you yeah. had shed loads of props everywhere, and it meant that you mm. kind of had like physical stuff, and you had bits outdoors, and yeah, I really enjoyed the really enjoyed the location stuff. Actually, such a different discipline at a single single camera as opposed to a studio environment. I really enjoyed all that. But like I say. Some of it worked, and we would acknowledge that some of it didn't work. But looking back on it, I uh, I like it. I feel that as well, though. The kind of show is... It reminded me a lot of The Goon Show. Do people say that? Yeah, a few people have. I think just that slight campness... Like, I don't mean camp um, as in, you know, limp wristed. I mean sort of... Well, I didn't mind if you just, did. <laughs> I mean, just, you know... I think uh, I'm increasingly camp, actually. Oh, really? As a human being. Really? Yeah, I do. I don't know what that means, but okay. I do... I did some gigs over at the Kilkenny Festival recently and someone came up to me and went, oh, God, you're amazingly, amazingly camp and flirty on stage, aren't you? I thought, am I? <laughs> I wouldn't have thought that, but then I haven't seen you do stand-up for a while, so maybe well, it's all changed. Oh, yeah. Um, but, but you know, it's, it's, it's very playful and it's very... I think that's what's Goon Show, like very playful and a little bit surreal but not completely like Mighty Boosh surreal. Yeah. But then it's a bit filthy as well. Yes. Do you have to even tone down the filth? Yes, massively. <laughs> Have you seen our live shows? Oh my god, they were they were illegal. <laughs> but so but so within that, for me, that's the kind of stuff that like the more you watch it, the more you like it and and it felt like it kind of had like the buzz that seemed to be around at the time was that sort of um culty thing of like, you know, jokes that would be funnier and funnier the more and more you watched them. Yeah. I think we I think we quickly got quite a really nice loyal nice loyal Fan base. Fan base, yeah. Not massive, but we had lots of people who kept coming back and would travel to see our shows in different parts of the country, strange gigs in Swindon and things where suddenly someone would have driven sort of four hours to see us, which... But, yeah, I think... Yeah, I think it was. I think it is. I hope we still do stuff. 
But at the moment, you know, we're off doing other things and that's nice. Do you ever get, do people ever assume, with doing your solo show now, yeah. that you've gone, I'm on a famous TV programme now, see you later, other two dudes? Uh, I don't know, but I haven't. That are answers you, that. <laughs> are you still doing stuff with them? Are you? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I met with Mr Larwood this very Friday. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the in-betweeners. Yes. How did that come about? Um, I was sitting in a pub with Ian Morris and Damon Beasley having a drink. Who were the writers? Who were the writers, because I I knew them a bit. And um, they got a phone call saying, you've had your pilot commissioned. And they went, this is it. Hey, we've had a pilot commissioned. Do you want to be the teacher? I went, (laughs) all right. That's wicked. <laughs> Pretty glamorous, yeah. And when it Pretty fo- glamorous. Although Ian Morris did make me get off with him anyway, which I think is a bit <laughs> weird. When it first started out, because I got pulled in quite late on the first series, yeah. and Damon since said that I was one of the first people that said, guys, this is actually really funny, because I hadn't been involved in making it. Oh, right. And I think it's just that thing where you're so, you know, you've watched something a million times, it's lost all meaning to you. But when you I first... I you have to watch it loads of times. Yeah. But I, for me, that was part of the reason that I knew it worked was I would watch a scene ten times, but then still be going, "Fucked <laughs> yeah, in your mum's bed." Yeah. Um, but did you, when you read the script and stuff, or when you were making the first series, did it feel like this is something good? Or totally, was just- I thought it was great. The moment I read the first script, I thought this is hilarious. But me being me, I would never dream of allowing myself to think it was going to be a success. Never. I thought it would be. If you want to know the truth, I thought it would just. Largely, it would be seen by a few massively loyal people and be largely ignored from that point just because I'm involved in it. (laughs) That's the sort of human being I am. I always thought it was funny. And when we went to see the screening of it, I think that's when I I think that's when a lot of us went, Oh, this is oh, hang on a minute, this is actually this is proper funny, yeah. And (laughs) it like it's crazy, it got more viewers that I read a Guardian piece when the first episode of this series was shown a couple of weeks ago. And it had more people watching it than were watching the news at 10. Yeah. It was, I think there was an episode of Friends on E4 that had the most viewers ever that was probably like the last one or when someone split up with someone. But after that, it was the most viewed thing ever, ever on E4. It seemed crazy. It was more popular than the news. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) Than the terrestrial news, even though it was on E4. Really? Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. More watches. It was like two point. Four seven million, and the news at ten on ITV was like two point one million. Maybe it was a bad news day. <laughs> maybe it's just maybe the news should start running in between his clips. <laughs> maybe they should. Maybe the newsreaders <laughs> should just talk about clunge and like wanking off to each other's mums. I'd watch the news more often if <laughs> if they used the word clunge and there was references to wanking. <laughs> they need to get in with the youth. I just don't know. You'd have to be very careful about which stories you threw those words in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it is massive now. And, what? Um, clunge. Clunge. <laughs> it's every, but it's true. Even the word now, everyone knows what it means. Yeah. And I think particularly... Hopefully not the object. <laughs> have you, I mean, have you noticed with this series, it feels like first series, no one kind of really knew. Second series, there was a bit of a cult thing and there was yeah. a lot of advertising. But now this has been the first one where everyone actually knows what it is. Yes. And loads of people love it. And so, yeah, yeah I, I am amazingly aware of it. It's just... Uh, yeah, it's, it's really great, I think, that it's been such a success. Damon was on Front Row on Radio 4 the other day and was, was saying, it? as I kind of suspected, that they don't think they're going to do a fourth series. But yeah, yeah. the film is in the pipeline at the moment. It is. And the spin-off series. A spin-off series? Jay's <laughs> clunge moment. This is um, Ian Morris's suggestion that I live with 
the paedophile character <laughs> in a spin-off series with Mr Gilbert and Pedo Kennedy called Not Now, John. <laughs> I think nice that I live in a flat with him. Nice idea, Ian. <laughs> I think it could work. Yeah. Other characters probably. Why not? It's time, isn't it? Do you think you'll be in the film? It's I hope them so. Yeah. It feels like you're outside of the four boys, you're the most you're the biggest character. Well that's certainly what I've been posting on the internet. <laughs> under under about five thousand different names I've been posting that. <laughs> Um, I hope I will, but the film is... I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. Um, the film is sort of set after school. Obviously, I'm a school teacher. But, you know, there's talk of me being in it, and I hope I will be. What other stuff have you got going on? You're doing this Rod Gilbert thing. Yeah. What's this? It's a show starting on BBC One. It started the Monday Just Gone. And it's me and, obviously, Rod Gilbert and Lloyd Langford and assorted guests sitting around and knocking questions around. That sounds... Oh, that doesn't do the format justice. The production company might be really angry with me. Um, it's us sitting around and um, looking at the questions that perhaps pop into people's minds that, and then they dismiss them without getting a proper answer, like, can a dog blow? Right. Right. So it's just fun, really. Can it's, a dog blow? Well, I'm not telling you, you have to okay. watch the show. And what's it called? Ask Rod Gilbert. So there's a few of us knocking things about, and then there's an authenticator who actually finds out facts so we can get to the bottom of these questions. And we've done two of them now, and uh, it's really good fun, and I hope that that gets conveyed on screen. I'm sure it will. So you've got that, and then the tour, yeah. which starts... Next Saturday, <laughs> October the 2nd in Stafford. Have you been on tour before? No, I haven't. How are you feeling? Really, just so excited, like yeah. a child. Really? Like a child excited. God, yeah. And um, how can people find out about dates? Um, I think just by putting Greg Davis into the... Greg Davis tour Tour, into Google. But I'm all over the country, so chances are I should be near you somewhere. Yeah, come and see me. Greg Davis, thank you so much for coming in. That's all right. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes, Yes, marsha.com forward slash off the mic.